Welcome to Gut Check Radio, the health and wellness podcast giving you the confidence to trust in your gut. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Belden, a board-certified chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner. And just for those of you who are aware, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only and are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition and do not apply any of this information you hear in this podcast without first speaking with your physician. The man who not only crushes marathons, but also crushes his diabetes. Welcome back, Gut Check Ready listeners, to another episode. This is our second interview, and I had the pleasure of interviewing one of my good friends, as the title of this episode tells you. Dr. Garrett Pano, certified chiropractic physician himself. Garrett and I were actually in school together. He was a little bit above me, but little side story. He actually is one of the people who really gave me the impetus to start going into functional medicine. And he's actually the one who introduced me to the functional medicine club on campus while we were in graduate school and encouraged me to join. And looking back on that, had it not been for his encouragement for me to become a part of that club, I don't know if I would have continue to develop the love and passion that I have for functional medicine. But today, as the title says, we talk about all about diabetes and specifically Garrett's story. He has one of the more fascinating stories I've ever heard from being a marathon runner himself. And he has a goal of qualifying for Boston, which is, if for those of you who don't know, is an incredibly difficult task. And what Garrett found out after running about, I think his first four or five marathons was that his grandfather, his deceased grandfather actually ran the Boston marathon. And not only that, but just Garrett, his everyday struggles and triumphs of living with diabetes, how he uses that to further his life and not to use it as a shackle, especially around his running career. And if, when we go on much more different rabbit holes and even a few third rails, And if you want to know specifically what rabbit holes and third rails we talk about, if you click that more button in the show notes, you can go to the timestamps and then you can go to the specific time and topic that tickles your fancy. And with that introduction, let's get on to my interview with Garrett Pano. So how many miles you run this morning? Uh, I was supposed to run 15, uh, but I did not backwards, you know, think about everything. I also wanted some sleep, so I, I didn't wake up early enough. So I only did 12 out of 15 um because i had to get to my uh, first appointment of the day and then uh so i'll be running three miles after this to get to that 15 total for today mm, I, I love that dedication when you say only 12 is that because the expectation for you was 15 like you said yeah. with the programming correct correct mm. the last race that i that i ran I, I really realized you know um a marathon really starts at mile 16 about Mm. And the last 10 miles are really the race. Um, if you've run over, if you've trained well enough for 16, 20 weeks, um, you, sh- you know, you should be able to, to run 16 miles just fine and comfortably, you know, for the most part, but the last 10 miles are really when, you know, you're all the training, all the effort and, and mentality comes into play. Um, everyone talks about the bonk, you know, at mile 20, um, and the last six miles, but that's, that really boils down to nutrition. And did you just train enough, Mm -hmm. um, the last six miles? Um, but really if you're trying to be competitive and like push your pace and push a PR, the the race really starts a mile, like 16 about. Mm, I think I've heard you say before, you have to keep a sub seven minute per mile for 26.2 to hit the the Boston mark for the Boston mark. Yeah. Yeah. That Mm -hmm. would be 657 per mile. 
for a for a male of my age and my age group to, mm. to do that. I think that's true up until thirty five. Mm. I bet for for most people out there, even running that for one mile, if you haven't trained running, is <laughs> probably incredibly uncomfortable. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I did like I I let it all out last week, given that was after like a lot like a long run, and I think I got like seven nineteen for a mile and i don't think i've ever gone less than seven for a mile have you done like sprinting like that in the past like back in your high school days or anything like that? maybe back in high school and you remember in middle school when they made you do the mile run test as part of the the, the fitness your judgment of fitness i think i was by the end of middle school i was getting like 6 30 6 15. wow but then i completely once athletics ended after freshman year of college running was more recreational and you know now the occasional crossfit class it's only 400 meters right yeah <laughs> unless it's a mile test right uh do you does your box do mile tests they do a lot i haven't been doing as much crossfit recently so i haven't done a mile yeah. test in many a moon very many long a, time at least at least one fortnight <laughs> um i remember when i was in elementary school doing the mile test i was um, very uh, not fit until probably I didn't start caring about my health until I you know became diabetic. Say that like you're fit now, but <laughs> right, I'm not. There's so there's not so taken. much more. <laughs> um, but I remember being somewhere between third and fifth grade and doing the mile test, and it was like six laps around the field. It was 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 somehow the mile, and I remember hating it so much and I was I was walking it I was walking the mile mm. I remember because I didn't want to run it and I remember trying to like finish early like I was trying to finish at, at five laps instead of six <laughs> and I remember the PE teacher Mr. Lease Mr. Uh, Lease and, and it's funny I'm reminiscing about his name right now it's the second time this week I was in, a, in my office I have a very dedicated PE teacher who, who just came in with some goals and so I was reflecting with her how impactful sometimes you know teachers can be in especially PE teachers but I told Mr. Lease that oh yeah no I'm done I ran six you know I ran six I was like no you didn't and then I tried challenging him I prepared for that or that counter argument my third grade brain or fifth grade brain I was like yeah I did I was just, like have you ever seen like the uh the incredibles or like the flash like i just ran so fast <laughs> you pull a marvel or a disney movie on him <laughs> i legitimately thought that would work i literally thought like my creativity my imagination as a kid was so much that i i believe that i could convince anyone that i thought anyone it was possible for anyone just to sprint and like you not see them and, and it didn't work and he said go, go walk another lap <laughs> I was hoping that story would end with it coming full circle and you hiring Mr. Lease as your marathon coach at some point. <laughs> that would be uh, that'd be a very fitting uh, circle uh, of uh, of life at that of point. Of life. Speaking mm -hmm. of life, man, Garrett, I'll be honest with you. you. Have of all the people I've known, you have one of the most fascinating stories. And every time we either a talk in person or b I hear you on a podcast or in one of your Instagram videos or just on any platform, there's another layer of your story that gets unpacked. I just think, holy crap, this man, to be only, what are you, like 29? I think we're the same, he's 28? 28. 28, yeah. yeah, to have experienced that much on your journey it mm. is mind-boggling. And I know for you, the the day June 23rd, 2007, is kind of a, an important day in your life. So why don't you shed a little bit what that, mean, what that day yeah. means to you? 
Yeah, that is uh, the diagnosis and the almost like the rebirth uh, of myself. Uh, diagnosis of my type one diabetes. That's when I was in the ER, and I mm-hmm. celebrate um, not so much this year, but typically, you know, I almost care more about that date than my own birthday. And so this year was 15 years being diabetic, type one diabetic. Mm. if my math was correct um i think it 2007 to 2022 15 yeah we'll fact check that in the episode (laughs) um but um you know that that was that's been an impactful date and i think last year two years ago was impactful too because it was the first time that i had lived more diabetic years than Mm. non-diabetic and that was kind of like a special moment Mm of reflection um of that and did you just raise your insulin pump to the ceiling on that day (laughs) (laughs) i just just walked around just just held it up exactly um but yeah that diagnosis story has a couple of different layers to it and um you know but i'm very grateful uh of my diagnosis and my condition and it's created a lot of empathy and changed um how i see the world and you know, it's just how I think and live. And I'm very appreciative of it. There's a lot of times where you're angry at your condition, something like that. Right. And sometimes where you're, you can see the, the reasons why it's there. And I can, that helps me give some empathy to some patients that, you know, mm-hmm. when they deal with Hashimoto's, I know you talked right. about that, you know, or, or gut health or, you know, celiac, you know, like it's, um, it's very unique and very similar in that way. So, mm. Kind of tell us a little bit about the the initial reaction, or if you can even put yourself back in that emotional state when you were told what the diagnosis was. Absolutely. So it's like, um, so leading up to that diagnosis, I was a wrestler, and or I started wrestling, and um, so at this point it was the summer after my seventh grade. I started wrestling in seventh grade, so this was going into eighth grade, and I was wrestling at 101 pounds and. Throughout that summer, I started losing weight, and because I'm a kid, don't know any better, and um, wrestlers want to get to lower weight classes, and I was just like, oh, cool, great. Like, I, yep. yeah, I didn't even literally think nothing of it. I was like, I'll wrestle at a lower weight class next year. That'd be great. And um, so I started losing weight, and you know, fast forward throughout that summer, I was at a, a good family friend's lake house where I was living in Illinois, and we were in Michigan, and at this point, my energy definitely had to start to decrease, urinating all the time. It's like such classic DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, and type mm-hmm. 1 diagnosis-like symptoms. Going to the bathroom all the time. Uh, couldn't like sit still because I literally would have to go to the bathroom. I remember one time I was at a um, amusement park in Ohio called Cedar Point, and there was this big, big uh, uh, roller coaster called the Dragster. And it's like a 13 second ride, but and you wait three hours, right, in line to to get into this. And uh, we were like two and a half hours of three hour wait, and we were like so close to the entrance, and I could not hold my my bladder any longer, and so I I had to leave the line, and I wasn't allowed back in to, to take a leak, mm-hmm. and um and so it was just like constant urine output, but you're also fighting dehydration, so you're drinking water, so like everyone's like, well, of course you got to go to the stop drinking so much water. And like, you know, if you have no medical background, you're not thinking much of it. Peeing a lot because you're drinking a lot of water, you know? Right. So I'm at this lake house. Right. And my friend's mom tells me, 
that, hey, you know, you might be type one diabetic, you know, maybe you should make an appointment to get that checked out. You know, I think I've noticed these symptoms. And I think this lines up. Um, and so we actually had an appointment with my pediatrician to get tested. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wasn't going to be till after this trip. And it was a week long at this cabin. And, and so I was like, okay, that's fine. And then I continue to have low and lower energy. So I would like sleep during the day. Um, I remember being like, delirious like I would wake up in the middle of the night and just feel like I had to like get in water and so I would like take a bath and then like I was walking and I was like I literally was walking back and forth and couldn't um, get out of what was probably just a a bookshelf around an island in a kitchen or something like that like I couldn't Mm -hmm. like it was it was like my brain wasn't working and so my symptoms were getting worse and worse and then the last day you know leading up to it, we had like three days left and my symptoms were like, I was clearly not doing well. I was clearly very sick. And they're like, why don't you call you, call your parents to have you pick up? And I was like, we're leaving in two days. Like, that's like a 10 hour drive. You know, I don't want them. I want, don't want them to come all this way, pick me up and drive and drive all the way back. Just if we're all leaving in two days anyways. And so I declined that, but there was one day where I just had like no energy whatsoever. And I was, um, I was sleeping on the boat when they went out on the boat, I was sleeping on the couch and it literally felt like I have such of this visual in my brain of like my, my, after, you know, puking or doing whatever I was doing at that point, I felt like someone was biting my intestines. Mm-hmm. Like it literally felt like my intestines were getting squished and we were watching, like, I think that's when I watched, uh, like, uh, when a stranger calls or something like that. So uh, somehow that programmed in, into my deliria where I was, I, I visualized almost like this skull, like biting my intestines. Like I was in so much pain internally. And during my, me being asleep and in, in pain, um, my friend called my parents, they came and picked me up and I didn't even know they were on their way. All of a sudden they were just there. And so we drive, we drive back. This is making the story a little bit longer. So I apologize if this is long winded. Um, and, um, you know, we're driving back and, I remember being like passed out, lying down in the backseat of the car. And they're like, Garrett, like, what do you need? Like, you know, my parents are just trying to console me whatsoever. And uh, I somehow came up with the idea of pineapple. And so um, I know for a fact, pineapple is what I would ask on my deathbed, because this is what I was the one thing I wanted. Close to it. Mm. Yeah, this is pretty close to it. And so um, eventually get back to Illinois. My parents aren't sure what to do. My lips start to get cyanosis and turn blue. And then they take off my shirt and they see I'm like skin and bones. And eventually they call the, the, the ambulance EMS and they picked me up. And when I wait, when they weighed me, I was 68 pounds, 69 pounds. And you were what, just a hundred pounds a couple weeks prior, yeah. couple, like a couple months ago. Oh my gosh. So I was, I was, there was like nothing to my body. Mm. And um, so I don't remember, I have like glimpses of this, you know, glimpses of the ambulance, you know, just kind of everyone has, if you're ever hospitalized like that, you have, you're kind of going in and out. So I have those kind of glimpses. And eventually I woke up, you know, IV in my arm, not sure what's going on. And, um, and a nurse um, tells me like, Garrett, um, glad you're awake. Um, you know, we're getting you back to healthy as soon as possible, but uh, it turns out that you have diabetes. Mm. And it wasn't that big of a shock because my friend already preferenced that possibility. Right. Aren't you grateful to that friend now? 
What's that? Aren't you grateful for that friend now? And also calling your parents yeah, to was, bring them in. Such, and... um, my friend, that my friend and his parents, like were you know, um, saved my life in that way because the emergency doctor said if they waited five more hours, if five more hours had gotten lost in that trip somewhere, I wouldn't have made it. Mm. Um, and so the um, so they told me I'm diabetic. My attitude was, well, okay, you know, I'm. 13, 12, 13 years old. I'm going through puberty. At that point, I probably wasn't even in puberty. I don't think I shaved for another like four years. <laughs> Still haven't. Yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and, uh, but I was like, well, I'm changing anyways. Why not change one more thing? And that was really my attitude. And mm-hmm. um, from there, you know, just kind of start the recovery process and, and, and start uh, learning how to do life again. Mm. Do you know what your blood glucose reading was when they admitted you to the hospital? I believe it was 636. I knew I know it's in the 600s, but I think it was 636. And and just for people's reference out there, if you go get your blood sugar tested on any blood work, the range is typically between 70 and 100. Right. And even right. if you get up toward the 200 mark, that's pretty scary. So mm-hmm. Garrett was three and a half times the scary mm-hmm. limit to be at. And, you know, I've talked to many type one diabetics and this story, um, talk about a gut check, right? You know, when you see those numbers and get told something like that, but like I've talked to other type one diabetics and they've been in the 700, 800s. Somebody Mm -hmm. said they were in the over a thousand. I didn't even, the body's crazy. Right. And so, and uh, all these people that get, when you get diagnosed in this way is, um, you know, it's pretty shocking what you hear. Mm. So for many of us, many of the listeners out there might be familiar with what type one diabetes is. So we won't go into the nitty gritty of like the mechanisms and all that, but what they probably don't understand is that the first hour of your day is probably much different than the first hour of someone with a a healthy pancreas. Yeah. What what does that first hour for your day look like due to the the diabetes? So now, I mean, you know, I, I wake up and I try to chug water and check my blood sugar pretty much like right away. I need to know what, what I'm at what happened over the nighttime. So I check my blood sugar, depending on what that happens, what, what that's at and what I'm trying to do in the morning dictates everything. You know, mm-hmm. um, if I'm trying to run in the morning and I'm low, um, I gotta, I gotta have something right away. You know, I gotta have some juice. I gotta have some glucose tabs. I gotta do something or eat breakfast if I was just like not working out. But if I'm high, you know, I gotta give insulin and well, okay. How much is that going to lower me? How my blood sugar, how much is that going to lower how fast is that going to do it? If I do that and do these other activities, how much um, will that then change, you know, the amount of insulin I actually need to get down because I don't want to drop too low. The algorithm has to turn on right away. Mm-hmm. And this, there's, you know, this, you learn, it's a learned innate decision-making process being type one diabetic of trying to reproduce what your body would do. And the more knowledge you have and, and the more knowledge you understand how your condition works, you know, the better decisions you can make for yourself. And so, but I remember being when I was first diagnosed, you know, very shortly after that story, I just said, um, it was a very, like, I had to check my blood sugar this time, this time, this time. I had to eat this many carbs at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. And I had to do um, this much for a snack. And it was very, like, it was very binary. And, but I remember my mom waking me up at 6 a.m., given that that's not that early anymore. Mm-hmm. But I remember uh, my mom waking me up at 6am to check my blood sugar for me. And I, I was like, sad and like, 
groggy and I, I remember asking I was like do I have to like is this my life now do I have to wake up at 6 a.m every day for the rest of my life and mm-hmm. as a kid though you know that's a, as a junior high kid that's pretty impactful right right and so it's um it's like this constant um, person or constant job you always have to be thinking about and and has to bleed in and be a part of your regular life as well Mm, yeah, you can't go a day without thinking it doesn't exist. I'm sure you want to, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I've heard you tell a story of how one night your pump was dinging to you, but you just wanted to go to sleep and you just said yeah. F it and went to sleep and woke up and it was at some sky high number. And yeah, and then you got to deal with the consequences, right? It's mm. like, uh, yeah, it's it's a dance that you have to, um, you have to respect it and you have to, but it, you have to respect it, but you can't let it control you. You know, right. I think um, I came up with the idea of anything. When you have any issue in your life, and diabetes is no different, but I feel very connected to this analogy with my own condition is um, you're either running towards something or you're running away from something, mm-hmm. right? And with being diabetic, that scenario applies in two different ways. Um, you could tell yourself, um, I'm not a diabetic. I'm Garrett and I have diabetes. That's mm-hmm. different. You're separating yourself. Or you could say, I'm Garrett and I have diabetes. And that's, you know, kind of being a part of you. You can come to the, both those conclusions from both of the ways I just kind of said by either running towards it or running away from it. If you're saying, and if I say to myself, I'm Garrett and I don't, and I have diabetes and I'm ignoring that part of my life. I I'm constantly choosing to say, screw it. I just want to sleep. I don't want to do this. I don't want to count my carbs. I I don't care. I don't care how this affects me. I'm just going to react. That's a very negative relationship with yourself and with your health. Mm -hmm. And you're creating a separation out of fear versus Mm -hmm. saying I'm Garrett and I have diabetes. And you realize that that's a part of you, but you care more about your work, or maybe you're very passionate about these other things in your life and you know how to manage it. And that's all good and fine, but it's not like something that's like so close to you. Right. So it's not part of your identity and that's okay. As long as it's not a decision made out of fear and rather a decision made out of love and the vice versa. And that all can be true with the acceptance that's being a part of you. You know, you could feel controlled by it. You could feel so overwhelmed by what's going on in your life. And you can say, I literally have, there's nothing else to, to me, but this torment that is my condition. Mm. And I feel the weight of it all the time. I wish I didn't have it. And that's a very almost depressive way of looking at it. Right. Mm. And, um, but you could say, you know, and this is what I identify more as, is I'm Garrett and I, and I'm diabetic and I, I feel empowered by it. You know, yes. it's part of my story and yeah. it's how I connect to others. And that's how I've created empathy and you know, I've actually become so, you know, I see the world in A plus B plus C is because I've learned this algorithm, how I li- have to live my life. And so I've right. identified algorithms in life because of that. So it's mm-hmm. just part of my DNA now. I thought you were going to say you just see the world as one big hemoglobin A1C. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an iron and that's cyanide. I got to stay away from that. You know, that's carbon monoxide. You can't, you can't, you can't interrupt the, the binding capacity no. of uh, and and how sugar binds to it that's how no. I see it. <laughs> yeah, that that relationship you have with it i'm assuming is something that has evolved immensely since that first day you know 15 some odd years ago so yeah. like you talked about as a child it was probably more of burdensome and mom do i really have to start tracking carbs at 6 a.m 
but like you said, it, it's what I loved about you was that now you've taken it and you've literally run with it. You've run 26.2 miles with it multiple times. Yeah. So how did the kind of the impetus to take, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Garrett. I have diabetes turn into, Hey, like I'm Garrett. I have diabetes. And I also run marathons with that. Hmm. So the call to do marathons was actually related to my diabetes. It was um, at a time when chiropractic school, when I'm trying to figure out uh, more of my mission, more of my why, right. And mm-hmm. who I want to see and how I want to see people. And as I was figuring this out, I see, um, essentially I see a fundraiser to do the Chicago marathon with, um, American diabetes association. And, you know, at that point I had started to jog and started to run, but kind of aimlessly in for a challenge, you know, what might, if you, and across the gym, right. You know, maybe you have every now and then someone says, Oh, there's a 5k coming up. Do you want to do it? Oh, sure. You know, or maybe that goes as far as to a half marathon. Like that's a really big challenge. Or I have people in my gym ask me about running a 10k, you know, like, so, you know, I was kind of getting into running and just sporadically and probably not going to really do it again. But then I see this advertisement for being part of the American Diabetes Association's team for the Chicago Marathon. And I said, oh, that's cool. 26.2 miles for the 29.1 million Americans with type 1 diabetes or diabetes at that time. It's my, it's, I'm pretty sure it's like 32, 33 million at this point. And it's definitely higher than 30. Um, but um, I thought that was a cool slogan. But then I look at the date of the last date to register. And again, I'm already thinking about, I want to see diabetic patients. I want to be involved in other diabetics' lives. How do I do that? And I look at the date, the last date to register was June 23rd, mm. Mm. 2017. No, it would have been June 23rd. This was October. Yeah, 2017. So mm. 10 years later, right? You know, mm. um, 10 years later on the deadline, what, like I had such a relationship with that, with that date. And right. I was like, it's done. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to raise the money. I don't know how I'm going to run it, but I'm, this is what I'm doing. And I mm-hmm. felt a very, very strong call from uh, the universe to say, you know, this is what I should be doing. And that had its own experiences and stories and fun and challenges. And, um, but that's what got my foot in the door and started the journey of, of this running. Mm. I think it's so powerful when people have those, the universe talking to me moments because for some of us, we may be closed off in those moments. So they may happen, but we don't even recognize them. And even for some of us, they happen, but we choose not to want it. Mm-hmm. So we almost bring ourselves to a phase of conscious incompetence, which is probably the least on that four quadrant model of conscious incompetence you want to be at. So mm-hmm. what, you know, when you saw that date, what percentage of you said, no, nah, I'm just not going to do it. Or was there any percentage? Uh, maybe five because I was just you know I had some doubts but I, I once I saw it I was like crystal clear right it was like this is it and I think um you know I agree you know that, that quadrant of conscious competent unconscious competent all that um you really need to hear those types of uh whispers mm-hmm. um you need to be uh connected you need to be dialed in and you know if you're very religious to your creator god gods whatever that might be um you know, to listen to your gut and to hear those whispers, you have to be in a state where you of trust, of mm-hmm. self-discovery um, and humility. And that's the only way you can hear those whispers. And because I think um, I think it's actually Steve Jobs has a quote about, you know, when 
life calls you, you have to listen because it whispers, it never shouts. Your goals mm. will never shout at you. Your life's yes. you know, something along those lines. Um, and so when you're able to hear those, it's just like this resonance, something. It's like something very animalistic or humanistic or spiritual. It's like, this is it, you know? This is Go time. I'm, yeah. You think I, five years... No, I was gonna say, you think five years prior to that, you would have answered that call from the universe? Oh, uh, no. Yeah. No, mm. <laughs> I don't think I would have been ready for that. Even if I was jogging and running um, mm. five years, everything that led up, led me to that point to be, you know, eight months into chiropractic school. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely not. I still, you know, even if I was an adult, you know, even taking the idea of maybe I was a senior in high school or a freshman in college even taking the immaturities of being like a, a young man out of that, you know, just, but thinking objectively, you know, on how to my journey of being clear, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to answer that five years before. Hmm. So it's like the universe brought you that signal at the, the timing couldn't have been more impeccable essentially. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I remember mean, I thought about doing the signing up for Chicago marathon again this year. And it was that there was, there was no signal, you know, I was like, okay, that's not happening, you know, like, mm. and that, that would have been for raising money. And that would have, I would looked at the American Diabetes Association again. And all that, I was like, no, this isn't it. This isn't the time, you know, this isn't what is supposed to be happening. The return mm. isn't there yet. So. Mm. And that's, I just, I love that. Cause that's, that's literally like the theme of this podcast is trusting in your gut, trusting your intuition enough to know when the universe is calling, when Versus when it's an unknown number calling. Mm -hmm. so what do you What do you think you've done in your life that has led you to this, you know, heightened sense of intuition and trust? I think yeah, trust was a good word. This is a great question, and actually, before I answer it, I'll reflect to it on running that first marathon because I had a I had a lot of good. I had like two really close friends. I had a lot of people supported me during that training, um, but one I called him my running coach, and because he always uh he ran a few marathons and he was the guy i thought was really really into running and he would always like he got so excited when i started to run and so he was my running coach i would ask him about creating a training plan and those types of things and one of the things he said to me going into the race was here you've trained you know this whole time for this race in fact you've already run the race you've done all the 20 weeks of training all you have to do is show up and trust that everything you've done is enough. And you just got to enjoy, mm. enjoy the race, enjoy the run because you've done all the work already. So at the critical moment, the advice was to trust and realize you've already done all the work leading up to that moment. Mm -hmm. And you could have chosen to, to not trust it. You know, you still yeah. had to make the conscious decision to trust his trust in your trust. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that was like very reassuring um, in the ability to finish. But at that point, I hadn't learned enough about my own diabetes and trust my own diabetes. Like I had learned some things as in that training plan, but that ended up being an awful race because I said I got too scared. Um, I didn't know how my numbers would react and I took my pump off and I ran the whole race without an insulin pump. Mm. Um, it's like flying blind, of, essentially, right? Essentially. Yeah, I was like, yeah. I, I can't do this <laughs> mm. poorly. That's kind of deviating from your question a little bit, um, which was what are the critical moments that led me up to that 
point of acceptance when I saw the call to run? Is that the question? Yeah, that and just what things you think you do on a daily basis. So, you know, people can basically I want people to take away what your system was to to bring yourself to this heightened level of awareness, like what the things you do day in and day out to get to that level. So I think that I can summarize the system into two things. Um, and I want to be able to articulate it until recently, because this is actually, you know, I would try to in the mornings with, with my team, I try to set an intention. Mm-hmm. And often my intention um, is doing the right thing is always the right thing. Mm. Um, and that comes with an ironic part of it, because it's like, trust your gut, like the, the ethical decision to make should be, you know, like, it's not obvious but you don't have to think very hard for what's right. You know, if you had to, I'm, I'm not even sure what a good example is, but like, it's just when you are put in a situation with a gun in your head, it's like, you know what the right choice is about yeah. things. So with that is combined, doing the right thing is always the right thing. So I knew that I would have to do hard work. You know, I, for whatever reason, I would figure that I would that really valued working hard at that moment in my life. And I still do. Um, but to a much more extreme ex- uh, ex- uh, extent. And so um, the right thing was getting up early mm-hmm. and putting in the hours to study. I knew my obstacles to study at that point were I needed a lot of time. And so um, I programmed my day essentially to wake up early, get to the gym, get finish the gym and shower enough time to do a little bit of um, studying or you know, emails, whatever I had to do before classes start, which was a job. And so I had classes work all, you know, eight hours. And then I have two, three hours after that, where I would study. And, you know, the right thing was, this was serious. This was graduate school. This was my doctorate program. I had to, to, there was no, nothing about it. I wasn't going to goof around. So I knew, I trusted that I was going to know what the right thing to do was, but then I knew that I had to do the hard work. So I knew I had to, what I did, which is still crazy. And I can't believe I did it was that I got up at 3am for that first year and a half, mm. like Monday through Friday. You've been listening to Jocko a lot, haven't you at that point? <laughs> at that point, <laughs> at that point, I'm not sure if I knew who Jocko Willink was, but a freaking, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he gets up at four or four, four fifteen every day. So maybe Jocko be... eats his alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I've actually, I was thinking about this in my run today, actually. I always, am shocked maybe it's because i've been so sleep deprived from this uh story um and prior to that but when people say or when motivational speakers say um they don't know an alarm clock needed they don't need that you know to wake you up and i freaking works i work my ass off every day so much i hit the bed and i want to keep sleeping i wouldn't be on schedule i need the alarm clock yep (laughs) it's easy to get up and once i'm up i'm like i don't need coffee to get going but it's like I need that to start. Yeah. Um, so I, I was thinking today, I was like, how full of it is it? Uh, unless it's just purely from a rhetoric perspective to say, like to say, hey, your passion should be important to you. But uh, like, I was like, of course you need a needle fucking alarm clock. Oh, right. I, I didn't even ask you, am I supposed to swear? I don't even know. You can, you can do it. Yeah. Either you way. Know, yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter. Whatever, whatever flows comes out. <laughs> so, um, so I knew I had to, I knew I had to wake up early. So I woke up at 3 a.m. I got to the gym by four. I did gym from four to five or five fifteen and it's on for 10 minutes i showered and try to be at the school by like 6 15 6 30 so that way i had at least an hour before classes started at 7 30 mm. um 
So I knew I had to work hard, wake up early, work out, be part of that in my life, be open to other types of working out. And then I knew I had to work hard in my studies and go forward. So um, as you know, the right thing is always the right thing. Like, you know, the morally ethical thing that you can think of, that's what you should be doing. And you have to work hard to do to do it because we're born not wanting to go outside our comfort zone. So that's really where the work hard principle comes in is to achieve the right things. You need to work hard against our natural programming and our nat and now our natural, unnatural environment that just wants us to sit and do nothing. Mm. It's fat. I think I heard Joe Rogan say this once, but he was, he even said, you know, every day I'm fighting the urge to do nothing. Yeah. And people, and especially in the podcasting space, look at him as the Mecca of what it means to run and own and produce a podcast. So for him to say that, that was just like, wow, okay, even the people at the top experience these mm -hmm. tiny daily emotions of, you know, I, I'm good. I don't want to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and that him his quote about that being the most lazy, non-lazy person or whatever it was summarized as, like, I completely like sympathize with that you know i love i would freaking just love to all the time just watch all the marvel all the star wars mm -hmm. i'm looking at my books like my fantasy books my my fun books my um books about the brain and mitochondria like i would love just to sit and just do that that would be great mm -hmm. and i that's an urge for me to do but i have to fight against that so i i empathize with that 100 this is one of the cool things about you is your hobby was always video games but not just in the sense if i play casually like I own t-shirts that say, I love playing this video game. And yeah. I, I remember that a couple of times in school, you would say, yeah, I was, I hope you don't mind me putting this on the ether, but you're like, yeah, I was going to study. And then I ended up playing video games till like two or three, <laughs> but, but then you would still get up and still do your same routine. So I, it, it was just so cool to me to hear that you would allow yourself that play yet still know, Hey, there's still stuff that's got to get done and I'm still going to do it. Yeah. And that's like, but then there comes that, you know, that lesson that I learned about running towards away from something they're allowing, there is moments where I definitely have learned to allow the play, but there are times that I felt like that it was not me allowing it, but me having every intention not to do that. And then feeling bad about playing. And then there was this relationship of, okay, well, how do I be nicer to myself? And I really, that's something that past two years, two and a half years um, that I've really learn a lot about and become more at peace with, you know, but there are times when I was like, yeah, you know, that's, I wanted to study, but I did this anyways. And so now I got to adapt because that's my mindset is you always adapt and move, move forward. And so, um, so yeah, you always, you know, you got to take pride in being a nerd. You got to be take pride in who you are and what you like and things like that. I don't care that uh, I talk, I know a lot about star Wars that I'll talk about it. And my dad will be like, He's like, Jesus, Garrett, like, because uh, he'll be trying to say something like, well, actually, it's it's this, 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 this. When Anakin did it, it actually, you know, this is what he yeah. was thinking when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we know this because the book said this at this one point, you know, like mm -hmm. the guy who's read the book and he totally craps on people who only saw the movies. I'm, I'm the person who only watched the movies. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, so that's kind of, you know, what, where I'm at, but you know, I know you're um, this is your podcast, but I'm curious at this point in your life, what are some grounding principles um in terms of how you go about things and, mm. and have your perspectives that you yeah I, I think that's a, a great question and it's probably my version of rock bottom and I don't mm. want to make it sound real extreme or severe but it was it's just the level of my life where I felt wow this is this is what I'm stuck with 
And the fact that I'm even using that verbiage stuck with tells you kind of the, the psyche <laughs> where I was at in the moment. Wrong relationship, wrong career. I was even living in a completely different place than I grew up in. And I, I never thought I would be living in this place. So it was, it was honestly just the perfect storm mm. to put me through exactly what I didn't want. And because of that, I could then start to build the life that I did want. And it started with changing careers. <laughs> well, actually, it started with changing relationships, moving mm. to a different state, which at the time was for my job. I was moving. I was going to move anyway, but that helped. And then eventually changing careers was kind of the, the real pinnacle for me. I think there actually were a couple days where I woke up and thought to myself, you know, I don't want to be that person who doesn't pass the, the rocking chair test. Have you heard about this before? Uh, vaguely. Why don't you say it again? It's just the idea that, you know, when you're in your 90s or 100s or however, we're going to be living in the next 40, 50 years, when you're laying back in your rocking chair, how are you going to reflect upon your life? Are you going to have regret and shame and guilt for yourself? Are you going to look at it like, you know what, I freaking rocked it and I didn't waste a moment of time mm. I had doing it. So I think I just, I had this wake up call of, no, I'm going to do what I think I'm called to do in this universe. And I know it's going to be difficult. I know it's going to be challenging, but then when I'm sitting in that rocking chair, I'm going to get an A plus on that freaking exam at the end of life. Well, I, um, I almost want to bring extrapolate the rocking chair test to, um, you can do constant rocking chair check-ins. Mm. Why, why wait to 80, 90 years old to be able yes. to reflect on your life to say, you know, am I proud of how I use this time? You know, right. Uh, you know, we all have to plan and act as if we were going to live for a long time. The truth of the matter is you're not, you know, mm -hmm. my, my blood sugar can be just zero one day and then that's it game over. Yeah. Uh, so like, and that's true for literally anyone else for anything, you know, a car could hit you. Um, but if you sat back in an hour from now and just lean back in a rocking chair, are you happy with how you're spending the time? Right. And if the answer is truly no, yeah, there are some principles there that you're going by that might need a change. Right. I agree. I actually want to double click on something you said about the idea that your glucose could literally kill you. And, you know, we say that not necessarily jokingly, but kind of half-hearted, but for you, that that's probably a very real thing mm -hmm. that could happen. And how do you justify that on a daily basis? Or how does that change how you live knowing that at some moment your glucose could hit zero or 1200? Mm. Um, well, there's very, very, very rarely has it gotten that low. Right. And I think of the currents of that was more frequent, that fear would be much higher. Mm. Uh, but I, I mean, I think about death a lot because of it. I mean, mm. I do. And I remember that this exact question, you know, so when you first get diagnosed in the hospital and kind of going back to that 2007 was, um, you know, I asked that you're part of the training to leave is you have to work with a dietitian and a diabetes educator. It's a specific career that just how, how do you count carbs? You know, what is insulin? You know, how does it work? You know, that, that type of stuff, essentially like as my life restarted, this was like a real life tutorial on how to live. Mm. Um, and I remember asking the person, um, you know, what happens when my blood sugar, if my blood sugar hit zero, like in my mind, I wasn't really sure if the answer was die or would I convulse or would I like, 
be around could it be zero for a while i don't know and she didn't answer the question probably because she truly didn't know um but the um she was just like you don't want to find out and that was mm. like she had it with such an aura about her that was like yeah you're dead you don't want that and so i learned that right away and um so every day you know it's uh, this thought of oh wow i could you know it could hit to zero something could happen or it's just crazy and um i think the more swings as a type 1 diabetic you're swinging a lot and the variance of your blood sugar is so high and the standard deviation is so high of your blood sugar compared to the mean is so high then you know that's when those fears become more so because it's like you're battling the highs and lows all the time we call yo-yoing mm. and if you're dealing with lows a lot that and i even probably accept my lows more because i don't want to overreact because when you have low blood sugar because even if you're not diabetic you probably have experienced low blood sugar being hangry being sweaty being short-tempered um, you know, clammy, you know, people can get low blood sugar without being type one diabetic. And when you're in that mode, your sympathetic dominance just takes over. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I've grown to accept my lows and try my best. Some, I don't succeed all the time, but try my best not to overreact in those moments to overcorrect. So now I go from being low, let's just say 60. And now I'm like 280, you know, that's just, or 60 and dropping and quickly dropping and now i'm 280 because i've eaten so much i've reacted in such a way so i probably have more lows than which is debatable if that's good or not um in my opinion it's debatable most um endocrinologists will say you have to avoid lows at all times but um in my mind i'm kind of getting on a tangent here but um i've accepted that a low could happen but as long as it doesn't yo-yo all the time as long as i'm not going high to low all the time and super low and the more times that you're super low, um, it gets scarier because your tolerance to those symptoms changes. And you might not get your low blood sugar. You would get a low blood sugar symptom maybe at 70, right? Um, I might not get it till 60 or 59, which is kind of low, you know, on the lower half. You want to be able to identify if you feel 75. Again, base range, you know, you want to be like 70 to 100, you said earlier. And, you know, there was a point when I didn't feel symptoms till 50. And then it was getting so bad it was, I didn't feel symptoms till I was 40. And that, you know, when you're in that range, it's like, if you aren't checking all the time, you don't have this defense mechanism of alerting you. And so you, how you live your life can change that. But the acceptance that there is some, there's a diabetes is very controllable, but there's a part that's not. And you just, you can't live in fear and you just got to mm -hmm. act to try to change it. Yeah, to take the advice your dietitian didn't want to give you at first and embrace the power that comes with it and that's behind it. Right. And I just want to paint this point for our listeners very fast. So when we use the numbers of 70, 240, at any one moment, there's about a tablespoon of blood sugar in flowing throughout your vascular system at one time. So if you take like a tablespoon of table sugar, that's how much blood is flowing through you. So if you literally poured off just a little bit of that, half of that, that's what Garrett's talking about when he's saying he's going low. So in reality, it's actually not that big of a change, but the brain perceives it as such a stressor that it fights to keep it within such that tight range, which goes to show you why you get so many wonky symptoms and it gets really scary when you get super low or really high. 
you did a great job explaining that um and yeah that was that was fantastic um yeah so the the measurement you know 75 is milligrams per deciliter and so in a milligram right there's a thousand milligrams in one gram right so you know 75 milligrams and if you ever like think about that table sugar you know or think about how much a gram of anything is like i mean it, that's a significant small amount and that's throughout your whole body and regardless yep. Yep. of you are four foot five or six foot eight your blood sugar needs to be regulated at that level mm -hmm. constantly mm -hmm. so um i would argue i've never found data that said otherwise but i would i find it very interesting and my own bias would say that your blood sugar is probably one of the more tightly regulated in terms of homeostasis markers that your body has mm -hmm. because so much goes off of it and so right. much quickly declines depending on what's going on. Right. I don't know if that's true or not, but my bias wants to say it's true. Yeah. So. Yeah. For you keto zealots, you need glucose to live or your brain or red blood <laughs> cells would not be able to function. Can't totally eliminate it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. for you, I, I, I jokingly have said this to you before, but I, I, I sometimes I'll say you're lucky because you get to have basically a, can, yeah, a CGM right. on all the time. Mm -hmm. So to, to talk about, you know, you have to make tons of decisions just within your day, lots of gut check moments, just like, hey, if I eat this, I'm going to get objective feedback that tells me whether or whether or not my body handled it well. So talk to us a little bit about kind of what that feels like. Well, the getting using a CGM all the time, and when you have such variability because you're insulin dependent, um, the biggest lesson that I have learned compare the easiest lesson to learn is the impact of rate change. And this is kind of where, like, if you have ever taken a calculus class, you in derivatives, you could appreciate. So it's like, how fast is your blood sugar changing? If you check your blood sugar at one singular moment, even if it's on a blood test. That's for that exact one moment. But knowing how fast it's changing is everything. That's really part of the algorithm. Um, you know, and then you can quickly, you know, the other big thing you learn from CGMs is how does my body actually respond? How does it respond to beer? If you were like a non-diabetic and you got a CGM because you, you're in CrossFit gym and somebody told you to get it, um, you know, or how does it react to this type of glycemic food? Or how does it react to if I am on keto? You know, you can learn lots of interesting things that way. Um, but the rate of change is I've learned is everything. And so um, if I'm 80, okay, cool. Am I 80 and I realize I was low and I'm going up? Am I 80 because I was low and I'm going up super freaking high? You know, am I 80 because I was low and now I'm going high, but I was trying to get higher because I was going to work out. So my workout is going to decrease my blood sugar, but what I just ate is going to rapidly increase it. Do I need insulin right now because of how high it's going to be? You know, there's, it just, every, once you start to realize what the next thing you're going to do is how fast it's changing is what you will need then to make the right action. Mm. And I would love to be able to, I just finished listening to, it's funny that you asked about principles and we were talking about using the word principles. I just finished principles by Ray Dalio. Finally, great um, audio book. It's like a 13 hour audio book. It's freaking takes forever to get through. Um, but he articulates things in such an algorithmic way that he has to be such, such higher level intellect that he can see everything to articulate it in an algorithmic way. You know, it's taken him decades to do, 
but I, w- I would love to be able to write a book, like essentially say, if, then, when, you know, what to do, at least what I have done in situations to just really even truly understand the decisions that I make on an everyday basis. Circling back, the CGM is key to understanding these decisions. And it's key to really gaining power and interest of your body as a type one diabetic, because you're seeing the data all the time. You're seeing the numbers go up and down. You get a little bit more curious. Well, I know I should be in range, you know, and, and in fact, if you have a CGM, it's going to beep at you and you don't want to hear the beeping, you know, so how can I control the beeping a little less? I, how should I maybe do this? It makes you more invested. You see, it. it's a constant, even more than a constant reminder. If you're trying to ignore your condition, your CGM is there to kind of say, Hey, there's some stuff going on. Why don't we figure it out? Mm, constant feedback from life telling you not necessarily good or bad, but kind of good or bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I do feel lucky that type one diabetes and, you know, I would, I would say that if you're not diabetic, you shouldn't use this to console a newly diagnosed diabetic because mean anything to that person that time. Um, but I do feel lucky in that type one diabetes is probably one of the most controllable like autoimmune conditions mm. because of the data that you can see because of how everything is so responsive off one another. And I do feel lucky in that way in that, um, you know, just like if I wasn't diabetic, my life is my choice, but I get to see it and I have to think about it every moment of every day, you know? And so um, it, uh, it's just way more, it can be empowering if you allow it to be empowering. Mm. Do you find you ever struggle to stay in the present moment because of the amount of planning that takes place in order for you to live? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, some people take what's called pump holidays for that reason. Mm. Uh, I've described my pump um, and other types of recordings and with other friends as an anchor. Like, so an insulin pump is like a brick. Sometimes you can have insulin pump that just sticks to you, the Omnipod. It's a different type of insulin pump than what I have. Um, there's three big brands of insulin pumps, Omnipod, um, Medtronic, and then there's the Tandem pump. Those are like the main insulin pumps. And so two of those three are connected via cord. And one is like a, almost like a CGM that you can stick to yourself. And that's cordless. But I've always used one that has had a cord. And those moments that, that you even alluded to earlier, it's literally felt an anchor. It's felt like a weight when I want to just sleep because I'm working so hard. I'm working hard in the relationships that I'm in. I'm working hard studying or in my job. And I'm working hard and trying to be healthy and work out, trying to balance all these things, trying to learn at that time, you know, learn about finance, whatever it is. You're working so hard and then having to do something when you have zero energy feels like a giant weight is pulling you down. Mm. And, um, it literally is represented by that. If you, if I just took my pump, I held it and I dropped it, and gravity would pull on it just like an anchor. And so absolutely, I feel times when it, and when it's so heavy. Mm. Um, but, you know, just like lifting, you know, every time you go in that squat rack and you put that weight and you go all the way down, life is teaching you how to stand back up. Mm. And that's what, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons and gotten a lot of strength because every time that I have won battles for my diabetes to stand back up, you don't mm. win them every time. Sometimes you got to drop that set. Sometimes you got to drop that weight, but you know, I get the chance to do it every single day. Mm. So. 
I think I've heard you describe it once as when you had a crisis moment with your pump, it felt like running a marathon in order to fix it, which is so ironic considering you've actually run several marathons. <laughs> it's what I always love when people make, oh, it's kind of, it's not the equivalent or it's like going from a couch to running a marathon. When people make those analogies, you've actually run marathons. So for you yes. to say that five to 10 minutes to fix your pump feels like running a marathon, that's heavy. You know, like yeah. for the listeners out there, just imagine that the same energy it takes for him to run 26.2 miles is what sometimes it feels like to take five minutes to change an insulin pump. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it can be pretty burdensome without a doubt. And, mm. um, sometimes running a marathon can be easy, you know, depending on what you've done. Sometimes the last race I did the last 10 miles friggin' sucked. And, mm. and sometimes it can be like that too. And I think this is actually, um, these kind of questions and these empathetic questions and exploration of emotion, um, with diabetes and all conditions, I uh, need to talk to be talked about more. Um, because when you have a autoimmune condition or you have something and you feel like you can't relate to anybody, it's hard. That's that immediately is a block, right? You know, talking, mm -hmm. you know, if you were to talk about chakras, it would be like your throat chakra is closed off. You can't, you can't express yourself for, for truly because that thing whether you want it to be or not and how you identify it or what you do that is a part of yourself and if you can't express it you know and you can't relate and be able to talk about how these make you feel and how you can even explore these emotions with people and other people man it, the depression rate just goes sky high mm -hmm. and and it's um you can feel just like a failure you know, cause you feel like you should be doing better. And it's a, it's a very, um, it's a balancing act, but that's why you need a support system. That's why, um, best thing you can do is invest in your health. Mm. So, and I think for, for type one, that's perfectly personified because currently it's uncurable. So to find a group you can attach yourself to is mm -hmm. going to probably drive that much more improvement. And like you said, your, your mental health, your quality of life, your ability to connect with other people. But you, you know, you give me your perspective on this, but I've seen in so many people I work with that have chronic gut and autoimmune conditions that once they become attached to the disease or they join the Facebook groups or they buy all the books, it becomes too much of their identity. Yeah. And it prevents them from healing because of that. You know, again, with type one diabetes, you need insulin. So that's, that's going to be with you. But if you have something like IBS, you can 100% conquer that. But when people Mm -hmm. take it as this badge of honor it, it's hard to take that badge from them because they feel like they've earned it and they, yeah. i mean you have mm -hmm. and, and you know being a, a provider um finding the willingness to separate from an identity is a very hard line to, to battle you know somebody essentially needs to be ready to do that you know you always kind of propose that it's a possibility and depending on how they gauge interest would be how much you follow up on those types of conversations but yeah as a as a type one, you can go overhead, you know, one of the, I think one of the reasons why I started caring, well, there's two reasons why I started learning more about my diabetes and taking control of it. Well, actually, there's a lot of <laughs> living. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, like, I'm trying to think like critical moments, but there's this in being a diabetic and looking at the diabetic community, meaning IE online and how people talk about it. Um, people identify or you know, well, your blood sugar just does it. 
that's just diabetes. So there is a similar mindset, you know, of, you know, just like being attached. That's just how it is. And part of my nature outside of being diabetic is just being defiant to some degree. And I want to say, screw that. What do you mean? That's just how diabetes is your butt. You know, that's just how it is. Sometimes you go high and you don't know why that doesn't, that doesn't jive with me. And, you know, having all this data, I read this book, my diabetes science experiment. I forgot who the author was. She was a, a power lifter and she wanted to dial everything in. And she's like, she didn't accept that, that logic as well that, you know, diabetes is what it is. And sometimes you go high and sometimes you go low. Very few times do I say that, but rather I've changed that conversation to, I'm not sure why that is. And I, I just have no idea. Like I mm. can't find the points to get me to a conclusion why it is what it is, but rather I don't accept this is what it is. You know, it's more of, I don't know what it is because I don't have the information. I don't know mm -hmm. what more. And I, I think I'm, I've learned a lot of information, but there's still plenty more to learn. You know, so would so, you say you you're comfortable with the gray area at that point? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when it happens, it's like, okay, I'm not going to beat myself up. You know, I still have to get my insulin down. I still have to control this, you know, still have to, I still can figure out how to move forward, but um, you know, maybe a, a great example of something like this would be um, early 2020 when people were getting diagnosed with, you know, COVID and having very big reactions and having cytokine storms, right. Or you just any... pinged our podcast to have the blue thing above it. <laughs> well, uh, or uh, sorry, maybe you can edit and just when somebody gets an infection mm. and you go in some kind of cytokine storm and some kind of, and your inflammatory reaction is so high, your blood sugar just stays high and the amount of insulin you need to get it down is so much more than your regular basal programming mm. that it might be high and you're not sure why. And, you know, there could be moments of acceptance like that. It's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why, you know, I, I might be sick. I might not, but I know I have to get this down. And then you figure out the why maybe later. So yeah, there's just some acceptance to it for sure. Um, and cause you can't know everything, but you can damn try. Mm. And speaking of why you're, why with type one diabetes is, is pretty big. And it's, it's honestly, it's, it's pretty inspiring and it's pretty cool to hear about. So why don't you share kind of your overarching goal with where you plan on taking, you know, your, your life, your career professionally, personally with in tandem with diabetes. Well, it's funny that you asked that. I haven't been asked that specific of a question in a very long time. Um, or I think even talked about my diabetes. Why in a very long time. Um, so, you know, I guess focusing on diabetes, you know, everyone, I think have lots of motivations, we have lots of goals, lots of reasons for doing everything. Um, but for me, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to um, get control of my diabetes is I wanted to be able to um, use my hands. You know, I was at a state where I had a, and still do, have some kind of intentional, not intentional, some kind of um, background in tremor. And I remember going to chiropractic school thinking, like, can I be a chiropractor if I have a, a tremor in my hand, you know, and that kind of doubt. And eventually that doubt kind of creeped up so much. And then I was looking at my hands and I was like, 
I want, I want to be able to hold my kid. I don't want to hold, I don't want to lose my fingers. I don't want to lose my hands. I don't want to lose my eyesight. I don't want to have retinal damage. I want to be able to see my loved ones. I want to hold them. I want to talk to them. And literally like use being a chiropractor, using my hands that like, I was like, this is too big for me not to take care of this. And so that got me, once I connected those dots, that was enough for me to really uh, flip the script and apply things that I was learning and, and read the book, like my diabetes science experiment, do all these other things. Um, but as I progress and as I, you know, continue to be on the mission of helping people, you know, I want to, I want to be there for all diabetics. You know, I, I want to inspire them that to be able to live a life that they deserve and that they don't feel shackled and they don't feel anchored. And, you know, I want them to know that it doesn't have to be doom and gloom, you know, and, and this condition is, is rough. It's hard, but so is life. But damn it, if you're a diabetic and you're here and you're breathing, you obviously are tough as nails because a lot of other people, they would have quit by now, you know? Mm. And so um, as I continue to learn and grow as both as a person, as a provider, you know, when I interact with those people, um, and that's the kind of hope I get to instill in those and connect with those types of people. And that exact story is why I wanted the world to know your story. I mean, the, mm. the ability to take what some people might look at as a burden and a crutch on life you take and you turn into your icky guy, you know, the Japanese culmination of what you're good at, what you can get paid for, what society wants and what you enjoy. You, mm. you take your biggest burden and you turn that into that. And that's, you know, you, you talk to people that just, have it figured out in life. And I feel as though one common thing we hear across them is that trait is that ability to make the decision that they are going to take the biggest struggle in their life and turn it into their biggest reason for being. So I, I commend you for, for reaching that point. Cause a lot of people are on that train and they, I don't know if they're going to be getting off anytime soon, mm. but it's cool when they do get off. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, truly. Um, and th this conversation in, uh, in itself has given me chills right now. Um, and I wish that... I could, but I'm in Arizona and that will never happen. <laughs> it's humid and it's sticky and there's moisture in the air in Milwaukee right now. It's only 67 degrees. But mm. anyways, um, you know, I think a lot of people are in search of meaning and trying to figure that out. And but when you somehow get a glimpse of that bigger idea or a bigger purpose and, and can turn your faults into strengths. Um, that's what makes the right thing, the right thing, you know, mm -hmm. all when, that's when circling it back to that principle, it's like, if you have the vein, like the smallest clue of where you want to go and you have that picture even partially painted out, all you need to ask yourself is this decision going to get me there. Like what would, what would not my, who I am now, but the person that is hundred percent on that trajectory, what would that person do? And if that person would do that thing, that's what you should do. Even if you feel like you don't have the strength, you should figure out a way to get there, you know? Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, it's, it's hard to have these bigger conversations with people, right? You know, so people are, can be scared to this, you know, takes a lot of self-work and, even confronting things from your past that might not be fun to come confront, 
you know, we're talking a lot about my condition, but there are other things, you know, everyone has some kind of dysfunctional family or dysfunctional relationship that you alluded to. And, you know, as you identify and, and maybe address those, your ability to hold a bigger paintbrush to have that picture increases. And as that increases, you can then um, work towards that and effortlessly, at least even in the small things. Kind of as though the how eloquent that painting looks or how compelling your story is, is directly proportional to how uncomfortable of situations you put yourself in. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's been some times recently, you know, in the past two weeks, three weeks that I've had to make some super uncomfortable calls and literally call. And, um, it's, um, but I knew based on my past and my values, what I, the man I want to be. And if you're listening man or woman, you know, that you want to be, you know, the man that I wanted to be would have made that decision. And even that it was super hard, you know, I, that, that's what you do. Mm. And, but if you can't make that decision, you can't beat yourself up for it. You just hope that the next time that comes around, you can maybe do it. Like you said, with your diabetes, you, when you see a number that's frightening, you just, it just is. There's yeah. no, you don't add a connotation to it. I think Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now, said something. There's a saying where it goes, is that so? You know, some guy, his child gets run over by a car and someone says, your child's dead. And he says, is that so? And then he wins all this money. And someone says, you want all this money? Do you feel so happy? And he says, oh, is that so? And I think what you just said right there it hits it right on, the, right on the head of the nail. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, man, we could sit here and talk for hours, but I don't want to take too much more of your day away from, you know, the lovely 67 degrees high humidity in Milwaukee, <laughs> Wisconsin. So why don't you tell the people a little bit more about where they can find you on the interwebs? I know you've got a lot of stuff going on between podcasting, Instagram, clinic. So help yourself pay the bills here. So I, uh, I, I work in my office in Mequon, Wisconsin, which is, you know, 20 minutes north of uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, if you're interested in chiropractic or functional medicine services, you can uh, find me online and we can figure out a way to get you there. Um, you can find me on Instagram. I got a professional Instagram of Dr. Pano, D-R-P-A-N-N-O on Instagram. And then uh, we are about to publish our second season of the Die Buddies podcast with me and my co-host, who's mm, also incoming, everybody. Mm. That's right. Um another um, another fun season and so my co-host is a chiropractor and he's also a type 1 diabetic and last season we had a lot good long run we had a lot of fun interviews there and a lot of fun conversations and um we'll see where life takes us there so you can find that on all kind of you can listen to all season one pretty much anywhere on any podcast streaming service i can attest to that i just went back and listened to a few episodes over the past week and you guys have good demeanor and good banter together Thank you. Thank yeah. you. His, his, his parasympathetic to your stress ball. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. we can, no, oh, go, go ahead. Uh, I, I don't know where I was going to go with that. Some kind of silly comment. <laughs> well, I can put all that information that Garrett just touched on the show notes. There's one thing I like to, we like to hear at gut check radio and the podcast on, and it's, I like to call it the gut check moment of the week. So it's something that happened throughout the past week in your life where you were forced to make a difficult decision and how you went about making that decision. And ultimately looking back on it, you're like, Hey, was, did, was I in the right state? Did I do that? How, you know, how did that 
look like for you in the last week? Hmm. Hmm. So trying to think what would be a good gut check moment. I'm going to go with my gut and I uh, go with this one story. So I've been trying to, uh, as I alluded, I used to get up at 3 a.m. I had a really bad relationship with sleep. So past, in the past six months, past seven months, I've really been turned a leaf and trying to been more healthy with my sleep. And um, this week has been pretty crazy. Next week's going to be crazy. And I'm very dedicated to my goal with this current marathon. And, and so uh, I had to make a quick gut check if um, my sleep and my goal is what was more important. And uh, this past Thursday, um, I decided to uh, wake up at 3.30 um, in the morning and run by 4.15 a.m. to get to a bit networking meeting by 7 a.m. so I could see patients by 8.45 a.m. And I didn't like get back and to my, to my house until it was like 8 p.m. And so it didn't even feel like the same day that I ran. And it was a gut check moment because I, when I made the decision to get up early enough to run to get still in time to my 7 a.m. meeting, I asked myself, is, am I getting up in the morning and running because this is what I feel like I have to do? Or is this because what I want to do? And is this a short-term thing? And the gut check moment was uh, I decided to just uh, say it's a short-term thing and go go uh, lean in to the waking up early. Mm, lean in. Yes. Uh, Love that. You have any quick gut check moments? Oh, wow. He's throwing it back on me. That's what I got to do. Mm. You know, I recently did hire someone to help me with the sales and marketing in our business. And that, I think it puts you in challenging situations and that trying to find your own self-worth and value and be comfortable with, you know, the service or the product and the, the help that you provide to others. So I think it's been, it's been a fun week exploring, you know, what is it that I truly do to help people? And what is it that I'm really quote unquote selling and the services that I offer. So that was, that was a fun moment to explore and to get comfortable with communicating with a, another human. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Love it. All right, pal. Until next time. Until I appreciate next you having time. me. I appreciate you having me on. It was a blast of conversation. Um, I love your gut checks and I uh, appreciate your friendship. Absolutely. My friend, you as well. And to anyone out there, again, if you want to learn more about the glucose guardian or the diabetic diva, Dr. Garrett Pano, I'll put all the information in the show notes. Oh, man, that's good. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or entertaining, we invite you to share the love by leaving a five-star rating or review on your podcast platform of choice or by sharing this episode with your family and friends. And until next time, trust in your gut.